Shabbat Shalom, everyone. You know it's a serious matter when I preach from behind the pulpit. Okay. And I do have something serious to talk about with you today. In fact, uh, I, I would like to do something a little out of the ordinary for me anyway, which is to pray before we uh, begin. So, Holy One of Israel, Lord, uh, our hope in life is to do your will. But knowing that will can sometimes be very difficult. Nevertheless, we strive to make it so. And Father God, we, do, we pray we might do it with love, compassion, and justice, just as Micha taught us today. And we should seek justice and mercy and love and to walk humbly before our God. Teach us how to do that well and honorably and in ways that give glory to you and to your Messiah and to the hope of your kingdom, which is to come. We pray these things now, B'Shem Yeshua. So, folks, uh, I, I think it, it's, it's a rare thing for me to, uh, to deal with political matters. But when they spill over into the very lifeblood of our country, of our people, uh, then it is a necessary thing for us to intelligently examine these issues. We'll get to that in a minute. So I think, it, you know, uh, it's not it's a surprise to anyone that very uh, prominently in our news and in our uh, social discourse over the last few weeks, uh, this decision, the decision by the Supreme Court of the United States to uh, sanctioned gay marriage across uh, all 50 states of the Union has become a subject for discussion. And it is a subject for discussion for all of us, whether, you know, whether people have faith or not. It's part of our American way of things. And, uh, you know, one of my habits on the July 4th is always to read the Declaration of Independence. Uh, and it reminds us that we are a country uh, where freedom is paramount. And we fought, fought wars over it, uh, and we pride ourselves on public discourse, our ability to speak frankly into one another's lives. So here's the problem. I, I, I entitled my message, by the way, we lost a battle, but can we win a war? And that's what I want to talk about. Now, it's no secret that people of faith, like ourselves, may oppose the definitions that the, that the civil government has imposed on an institution like marriage. And that's just the start of it for me. I mean, there's a whole, there are a whole plethora of social issues that fall under this rubric, frankly. And the question is that based on our understanding of the truth, what can we do as people of faith to bring light into an ever-darkening world? That's the question I would like to examine for all of us today as seriously as we can. 
So in an opinion piece in the New York Times this week, uh, entitled A New Culture War, author David Brooks has offered a challenge to communities of faith. Now, if you don't know who David Brooks is, David Brooks is a columnist for the New York Times. He is a, you know, a moderate liberal, if I can, if I can characterize him in political terms. Uh, he seems like a very nice person. I've heard him speak many times, and I read his columns almost uh, every time I see them. He's an intelligent, uh, thoughtful person. And he is not rebuking those of us who might disagree with this, uh, with this decision by the Supreme Court. Instead, he's offering a, a challenge. And interestingly enough, he quoted uh, a person, uh, what's his name, Rod Dreher, who was the author of a book the, uh, called How Dante Can Save Your Life. Now, I've never read that book, but Rod Dreher is a believer. And, uh, he, and, and uh, in, in uh, commenting on him, David Brooks said this. He said, the Supreme Court's gay marriage decision landed like some sort of culminating body blow onto this beleaguered climate, the climate of uh, what he's characterizing as sort of Christian conservatism and conservative values in general. Um, so Rod Rare, the author of this outstanding book, Dante Can Save Your Life, wrote an essay in Time in which he argued that it was time for believers, Christians, to strategically retreat into their own communities where they could keep the light of faith burning through the surrounding cultural darkness. Now that might be one, that might be one way to go, right? We'll just huddle up together in some, you know, country of our own where we can uh, hi, you know, hide behind walls, ever widening, ever, ever, ever uh, taller and taller walls. And hey, we'll be able to preserve our way of life. You know, this is one of the mistakes that our people of Israel made early on. You know, they decided we're just going to become so insular that uh, we won't have much of an effect on the world. That's one, that's one solution. And maybe we could go that way and everybody will feel better. At least we, we can say we haven't been polluted by any of this stuff and we, you know, we don't have to be worried about it. I reject that entirely. No, instead I would say that our strategy, our strategy going forward must remain what it has been, which is a strategy of fighting on. It's still our best approach to be forthright about who and what we are. But I also think that it requires a different set of tactics. And I will explain. You know, in discussing this subject with so many people this week, I don't know about you, but I probably had 20 or 30 hours of discussion on the subject. It's been all through the news and in the religious communities in general. It had, we're all kind of figure out the effects of, you know, on our, the relationship between church and state and all that sort of thing. So I've had many, many, many discussions with people. But I had one interesting discussion with somebody who said... He told me that the reason that this decision was such an easy win 
for the folks who, who, who brought it before the Supreme Court was, and why it's been so widely received positively in this society. You understand that this is a popular decision. Do you all understand that? This is a remarkably popular decision, whether you like it or not. So it has become part of the civil life of the, of, of our, of the people. It's not like it's, you know, so, it was close on the Supreme Court, but not seemingly in popular culture. Across the country, you talk, speaking about individuals, is widely popular. So why was it so widely popular? Why was it so widely accepted? It was because it was couched in a framework of love and family. So who could say no to that? Who could say no? I can't. I've got to be honest with you. Love and family, that'll get me every time. So we can, if we can frame the argument appropriately, we're going to receive broader acceptance. You see? So what I mean by different tactics is that we need to continue to set a high bar of moral, morality and ethics as we understand them from scripture and tradition, but they need to be expressed in the mode of love, compassion, and healing for everyone. You see, our rhetoric, the rhetoric of people of more conservative bent, is violence, is violent. It's evil, in fact. No wonder we don't win. No wonder we can't win. Why is anybody being helped by the way we speak? If we, all we want to do is condemn, if we want to use the language, listen, I know what the biblical language says better than you do. It was also no, it was written three and four thousand years ago at a different time and place. It doesn't mean that the, the, the fundamentals of it has changed, but the way we communicate, listen, you can't execute somebody because you don't like what they do anyway. Okay? So I think we need different tactics. However, we must begin by starting our, stating our own position unequivocally and without compromise. It does no good to refuse to take a position because some won't like it. However, to the best of our ability, we want to state things in positive ways. In other words, what we are, uh, what we are, are for, I'm, let, me, let me state that, let me pull that sentence back. What we are for, rather than what we are against. You see, this is why we lose all the time. We're always talking about what we're against. What are we for? Are we for love? Are we for compassion? Are we for justice? Are we for doing things righteously and walking humbly before our God? Is this what we're for? So, with that in mind, uh, a number of our rabbis got together, myself and Rabbi Rich Nickel from Ruach Israel and Rabbi Paul Saul, we got on to talk about this. And uh, our brother Rich, who is a wonderful writer, drafted drafted something for us that we could use to work with. And we're going to use it for now. So let me share it with you so that we state our own case, or at least I'm stating what I believe is the case, uh, first and foremost, where our starting point is. You can see it up on the board. 
So let me read this for you. It says, though we make no specific judgment on social contractual unions in the public sphere, with respect to marriage as understood in our emerging Messianic Jewish tradition, marriage for our community is defined as the union of a man and a woman for the primary purposes of bearing children, creating a transgenerational Messianic Jewish community, and for the joy and ongoing happiness of the wedded partners. That's our start. Period. That's what marriage is. Not what it is not. Okay? Not what it is not, which is far too much what we hear all the time. It's not this, it's not that, it's not this. This is what it is, as we understand it. The statement that we put up, which is not up there, I don't think, it's not, no, goes on to say this. This position reflects both the consistent Tanakh and Talmudic tradition and is underscored by the teachings of the Besorah, the teachings of Yeshua and the Talmudim. Members of our Messianic Jewish community may have varying views on recent court rulings and trends in the public sphere. In our community, differing perspectives should be treated respectfully. Special care should be taken not to intimate that those of differing points of view lack thoughtfulness, love for others, or moral sensibility. Because that can happen too. Finally, we said this statement, though reflecting the collective wisdom of the senior and associate rabbis of our New England community, is provisional in that we await the full orb discussion and determinations of the Messianic Jewish Rabbinical Council. At that time, much more will, will and can be said. Meanwhile, in the interest of Shalom Bayit, peace in our local communities, we offer this guidance. So that's our starting position. That's where we're starting from. I want it stated unequivocally. Anybody who wants to know, this is my position on it. This is what I think marriage is. If you ask me, that's what I'll tell you. Okay? Now, getting back to the challenge issued to us by David Brooks, because he is saying, listen, you, you, you folks, you, you know, you lose the argument because of your constant negativity about our, our inability to frame our arguments in ways that are constructive and productive and kind. So, he says this, so, so, so that you know that David Brooks uh, actually has an understanding of the world as it truly is. He said this about the society we live in. He said, we live in a society plagued by formlessness and radical flux, in which bonds, social structures, and commitments are strained and frayed. Millions of kids lived in stressed and fluid living arrangements. Many communities have suffered a loss of social capital. Many young people grow up uh, in a sexual and social environment rendered barbaric because there are no common norms. Many adults hunger for meaning and goodness, but lack a spiritual vocabulary. I said, when I read that, bravo. Bravo. Somebody who states it articulately, the problems that we confront day after day in our society. And we, why we wonder why there's so much goofiness. 
is so much goofiness. Not because, see, all of these things are symptoms, friends, of a deeper problem that exists in the in this human soul. See, we want to keep fighting the symptom. It's like the stupid doctor who can't figure out what you have, and so all they ever do is prescribe drugs for you to, to take care of your symptoms while you die. We have to go after the cure for the, the ail, ailments of society. And he laid them all out for us succinctly here. The problem is in the very heart, in our very heart, which is rotten. You know, you read, read Paul's uh, admonition in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following. He knows what the source of it. He, said, he, he tells us what lots of the symptoms are. But he always hits at the heart of the problem. The heart of the problem is that we don't know how to introduce people to God. That we don't know how to share the love of God with them. And so no wonder their souls rot. And then all of these symptoms arise out of their rottenness. This is the problem. We want it. We are always trying to affect a cure by treating some dumb symptom. When what we need to do is to get at the heart of the problem. How are we going to do that? That's our challenge. Let me say that I believe we can offer a corrective without judgment. Like our Messiah. The one who went to tax collectors and sinners and without judgment or compromise of his message lifted people up from their formlessness. And he gave them new hope. He gave them a reason to live. You know, I'm, I, I'm convinced that the world is filled with war. All this rebellion everywhere we go, not just because people are just evil, as if there's just evil in the world. That's, that's the easy way out. It's because there is hopelessness. People feel hopeless, and when they feel hopeless, they will do desperate things. But if only we could offer, those who have could offer those who have not, something to live for rather than something to die for we would see a world transformed. And I want to see a world transformed. Day after day, the weight of this world weighs me down. And maybe you feel the same. Corrective, without judgment, like Messiah Yeshua. The one who gives us all new hope, wherever we were. So I want to just look at two, quickly, two stories from his life to illustrate this point as a way to point us forward in our new tactics, and strategy for dealing with the difficulties that we find in this world. Not just this one. This is just one little symptom. There are so many other problems. And I thought David Brooks laid it out as beautifully as it could have been laid out. A formless world, barbaric in its mind, Kids living in stressed and fluid situations. 40% of all children are born out of wedlock in this country. With one parent most of the time. That's ridiculous. That has nothing to do with that Supreme Court ruling, by the way. 
but that's as big a problem, if you have any sense. Hey, I heard divorce is down, by the way. Divorce is down big time. That's because people don't even bother to get married anymore since 2000. So the people who get married are committed. So let me just take a look at these two stories with you. The first one comes from the fifth chapter of Luke. I'll read it to you. You don't have to look it up unless you want to. It says, after that he went out and he noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house, and there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Yeshua answered, and he said to them, It's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so he spent his time among those who needed him the most. He didn't reject them. He didn't build walls and say, let's hide behind these. Maybe like the Essenes, for instance, or other ascetic groups, or what some people would want to do today. He said, oh, no, no, no. We've we got to go where the action is. I'm going to hit me a target-rich environment. Be with them. Understand them, know them. In, the other, in another version of that portion of that same story, from Matthew, or I think, or, or Mark, it says that Levi gave up everything and went with him. Now listen, Levi was a tax collector. He lived a particular kind of life. If you know anything about the culture of the time, you know he was on the very lowest levels of society, even though he was wealthy. A lot, of fun, a lot of money and a lot of funky friends. And yet Messiah Yeshua was able to transform his life by saying to him, let me give you a better one. I have something to share with you that you cannot purchase. I have something that will fulfill you beyond all of these other things that you try to fill your life up with. So come with me, and I will show you the way. Is that what we do? Is that what the body of Messiah does? Or do we just tell everybody, draw our lines and say, this is the, we're, this is the inside and this is the outside? So the second story is from the, the John chapter 8. You'll, from, you'll be familiar with this one too. It says, the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, the law Moses commanded us, in the law, Moses commanded us that we have to stone such women. What do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so they might have grounds for accusing him. But Yeshua stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground, when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to cast a stone at her. Again, he, 
he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone. And the woman, where she was, in the center of the court. So he and the woman were there. Straightening up, Yeshua said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. Yeshua said, I don't condemn you either. From now on, go and sin no more. He didn't condemn her. He gave her another way. He gave her another chance at life. Now, this, now uh, tradition tells us this is Mary Magdalene, by the way. And Mary Magdalene became a lifelong follower of Yeshua. We have to offer people another way. In each of these cases, he offered them something new in life. And each of these people took it. Now maybe that's why the stories were included in the book. Because they're success stories, I don't know. But I can tell you this. Both of those lives affect your life to this very day. Both of them. And that's the kind of effect we can have when we want to give people something rather than take something from them. We can transform the world back to the order that God wants, one person at a time, if we're willing to give them love, respect, compassion. I know this is going to be difficult. In fact, I said to uh, I said to uh, one of the rabbis. I said, uh, "I have to admit to being afraid of this. I'm actually afraid of the approach myself. Lots of things could go wrong, but the thing I fear the most is what happened to the Messiah. I suppose." Because like him, we may have to suffer further marginalization if we choose uh, this radical road of compassion, of sticking to our guns, but being compassionate about. Look what it says of the Son of Man. In Luke chapter 7, it said, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all of her children. See, Messiah Yeshua's hope was for all people in the world, not just for those who went along with his program. But, you know, it worked for him. It worked for him, but not without cost, did it? After all, he had to go to the cross to defend it. And then he tells us that we have to take up our cross and bear it with him. Wow. If you're not afraid of that, I don't know, you've got more guts than I do. But I do believe it's the only way. So our friend Brooks in his article 
thinks that we have the spiritual vocabulary and the spiritual life to communicate a message that can heal the broken sinews of society, as he calls it. And I agree with him. Because if the gospel does not have that message, then we are without hope. The gospel is not more powerful than the Supreme Court, then we are without hope. But here's the, here's the rub, my friends. If we're going to make this strategy work, we each have to dig very deeply into our own souls to find it. Because I know, I know, the easy way out is to build up my walls and shut and lock all the doors. Lock them all. Shut them down. And I'll be safe behind them. I'll be safe. While everything decays around me. But that is not the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that all who might believe in him would have eternal life. And to that we must dedicate ourselves. So here's the challenge. Let's make up a new, let's make a new strategy, a new tactic in our uh, engagement with a popular culture that just crushes our values day by day by day. And that is to give people an alternative, a better way, a better way to live. And to demonstrate that love that passes all understanding to everyone whom we encounter. May God give us the strength to do it. Lord God, wow. This is a hard one, but we believe in the transformative power of your Holy Spirit. So, Lord God, I pray that you will give everyone in this room who knows you, everyone, a double portion of that Spirit, like you gave to Elisha, so that he might accomplish your will. Not to run around with a sword slaying every dragon that bothers us but rather the peaceful rod of Aaron so that we can bring new life, a life that buds anew into the dying embers of this world. I pray for our country, Lord God, on this day of our independence, that you would protect our land. Give our leaders wisdom to know what is right for all people. In the words of the Orthodox Union, may the civil rights of one never, uh, never encroach upon the civil rights of another. So we need to find balance and equanimity in our world. Protect us, O oh Lord. And may you glorify yourself in us and in the world that you will build through us. In the name of Yeshua. Amen.